Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year, even though we're a few days removed. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 15. We're going back to our series in Matthew, so we're going to be working through Matthew. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into Matthew 15. Jesus, thank you that uh, you have forgiven us of all our sins. Thank you that you are our risen Savior. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, and you, you pray for us. And Lord, we, we ask that you would pray for us now and help us to fix our, our hearts and minds on you. We want to be different because we encounter you through your word and by your spirit. We, I ask for your help and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's New Year's, so maybe some of you have, how many are like on a health kick? Or let's say a, a lifestyle, health lifestyle. I'm always on something, right? To be honest, there's probably more. So apples are good, right? That, that's a good healthy thing. Um, I'm holding two apples in my hand, and uh, I like apples, and I, I try to eat an apple every day. Um, but one of these apples is very different than the other because, in fact, one apple is real and the other apple is completely fake. This apple is actually no apple at all. If you are holding it, you could feel the difference. It's a piece of plastic. It looks like an apple, but it's not an apple. It has the appearance of an apple, but it's not an apple. And the reason I, I want you to have that image in your mind is this morning, uh, the title, if you, you saw it ahead of time, it's called The Mirage of External Religion. A mirage is something without substance or reality. This apple is a mirage. It's without substance or reality. And the title of the sermon today is The Mirage of External Religion. External religion is, is someone who has the form of religion, but inside their heart is dead and cold and spiritually lifeless. So it looks like the real thing, but it's not the real thing. And from a distance, maybe if you're sitting in the back, these, these look similar. If I hadn't told you, you might not know which one is real and which one is fake. Oftentimes, the externally religious person looks like the real thing but is not the real thing. And Jesus has a lot to say to the externally religious and a lot to say to us to avoid some of those traps. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to work our way through chapter 15 by seeking the answers of four questions. And the questions are these. What's the problem with external religion? What's the fundamental problem with humanity? What's the human problem or condition? What attracts Jesus' attention? And how do we know we can trust Jesus? So we're going to work our way through all four questions. If you're taking notes and you didn't write that down, no problem. We're going to go back through them slowly. First question is this. What's the problem with external religion? Jesus is going to show us. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 15. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, 
Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So here's the scenario. The scribes and Pharisees were the religious Jewish elite. They were the, the leaders, the teachers. And um, Matthew specifically tells us this, these are the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. So this is like the varsity starting team. Or, or maybe even better. It was like the all-star team of the Pharisees and the scribes. And they were sent with one specific purpose, which was to correct Jesus, to put him in his place. A lot of times when I'm reading the Bible, I like to, to imagine things in my mind. And often when I, I think of Jesus and the religious leaders, I picture a boxing match. So they're, they're often throwing verbal punches at one another. And so what we're going to see is the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they throw the first punch and it lands um, and Jesus is about to counter. And when he counters, he's going to give them an uppercut and then he's going to give them a flurry of punches. So they don't stand a chance, but they don't know that. So they think they are there to correct Jesus. And here's the issue. Verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. For those of you who are parents of, of young children or maybe even teenagers, uh, they're not just talking about like wash your hands before you eat lunch or eat dinner. What they're talking about is the tradition of the elders um, after the, the Jewish law was given, uh, years had elapsed, and the Jewish leaders started to create their own rules, and they called it like a, a wall around the, the law. And, and these rules were man-made. These were not God's word. These were not inspired by the Lord. They were man-made rules, and that's what Jesus is going to address. Um, and that's what they're talking about. They say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. See, they thought, the Pharisees and scribes thought, according to their tradition, if you get your hands wet, if you wash them in this, this ritual, it would somehow cleanse you. Not just your hands, but your whole being. And, and Jesus is going to show them that that's, that's a problem. Uh, and these rules really established, if you, if you know Jewish history at all, it, they, they came into being after the the Israelites were in Babylonian captivity, and they, they started to stack rule upon rule of man-made tradition. There's a huge problem with that, because what happens is you're, you're competing with two authorities, either the man-made authority or God's word as the authority. And either both can't be equally the authority. One has to be over the other. And the Jewish um, Pharisees and scribes, were, they were putting man-made rules over God's word. And, and Jesus is going to show them why that's a problem. Look at verse 3. This is the uppercut. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells us, Father, or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So Jesus is no longer on defense. He's on offense, and he just lets them have it. And what he's talking about, he's going to give them an example of why the traditions of men, their traditions, are harmful. And he uses an example where they had a tradition that they could claim that all their possessions and money 
were reserved for God, and they would use that really to feed their selfish interests and not help their aging parents. And he's saying you put the traditions of men above God's law. In this case, the Ten Commandments says, honor your father and mother. And when you do that, when you elevate something above what God says, you're, you're, you're making the word of God void. It, it's of no value. That's a big problem. See, the problem with external man-made religion, it, it seeks to replace God's word with something else. So you have the, the real thing, and you have the fake thing. They both look similar from a distance, but upon examination, they couldn't be more different. Now look at verse 7. This is where Jesus is just going to unload his verbal punches. So it's, it's hard for us to get the gravity of this. So if we were Jewish people, not, not religious leaders, but we were just faithful Jewish God-fearers in the Bible, we would have had great reverence for the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. We would have known that they were the authority in, the, the, in our land. And so you would have, maybe you've had thoughts about them, but you would never verbalize those thoughts. So what Jesus is about to do would have been shocking to all who heard it. Verse 7. And Jesus is going to go right at them. You hypocrites. So they're the teachers of the Old Testament. And Jesus is this guy that, that in some ways came out of nowhere and he is questioning and challenging and rebuking them. And now he's going to use the Bible to correct them. The Old Testament. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. In other words, they're not real. These people, like this plastic apple, they look like one thing, but inside is no life. No love for God. No new life that's transforming them from the inside out. See, one of the problems, there's a lot of problems, but one of the problems with external religion is it doesn't pierce the heart. It doesn't transform us from the inside out. He continues. He, and and he, he's calling the people, and he called to the people, and he said to them, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. In other words, it matters what's on the inside. That we have been changed. That we have a live relationship with the living God. I think pastorally, this might be one of my biggest concerns for Christians and for non-Christians. Because I think oftentimes, when people who don't know Jesus think about Christianity, they think of external religious things. You do this, you don't do this and God will accept you and love you. And then inside the church, there are people that are completely disillusioned by leaders or friends that had the form of Christianity, 
But I think in many ways, oftentimes, were externally religious. They had the trappings. They spoke the language. They looked like the real thing. But if you opened them up and looked inside, there was no life. There was no transformation. Now, one of the ways to spot this, I think long before there's gross immorality in a person's life, these externally religious people, one of their early symptoms and signs is they they don't have love towards other people. They don't forgive other people. They don't have grace towards other people. Why is that? Because inside is empty. They haven't experienced love, the love of God. They haven't experienced this amazing grace that is completely undeserved. They haven't experienced the forgiveness that we celebrated in communion, that your past sins and your present sins and your future sins are completely covered. See, when you do, it tenderizes our heart and you're more loving. You're quicker to forgive. Now, there may be some of you that you're thinking, I'm not sure which one I am. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm this one, but I want to be this one. If that's you, pay attention. Because it's not the outward trappings of Christianity that make you a Christian. It's a vibrant relationship with God through faith in Jesus, which we're going to see more about as we work our way through the chapter. So it's, Jesus is saying, it's not, it's not not washing your hands that makes God not accept you. It's not um, eating certain foods or not eating certain foods that makes God accept you. He said, none of those things will cure the human condition. None of those things will get to the heart of the problem. So the question is, what is the heart of the problem? What is the fundamental problem of humanity? And imply, what's its cure? Because look at verse 12 through 14. Jesus wants to make it crystal clear that the Pharisees, though they look like followers of God, they in fact are not. Verse 12, Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? So the twelve disciples, Matthew, Mark, um, James, the others I'm drawing a blank on can help me. You know, twelve of them. Um, Peter, they're like, hey, Jesus, come, come over here. You have, you have stirred the, the hornet's nest here. They are not happy with you. Do you know that? Of course he knows that. Look at verse 13. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides and are going to lead others to fall in a pit. They can't see spiritually, and they can't lead others to see spiritually. And when he says in verse 13, every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will be rooted up. You remember he taught in parables at times, and he said there's wheat and there's tares. There's, there's, there's weeds. There's things that look like wheat but aren't the real thing. That's what these people are. Let them alone. Don't follow their teaching. And part of their blindness, probably the, 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 the two major problems with their blindness were this. They didn't 
They didn't understand how sinful they were by nature, and they didn't believe that Jesus was the cure. And so they had no need for a Savior. They had no need for the Messiah that was clearly promised in the Old Testament, and they were really happy looking like something that they weren't just by their outward performance. So the question is, what is the fundamental problem of humanity? Jesus is going to tell us. Peter speaks up. Can you, can you just explain to us what you're talking about? Verse 15. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And the, the parable I think he's talking about, and the commentators seem to think he's talking about, is the idea, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles in verse 11, but it's what comes out. What, what, what are you talking about? Help us to understand. And he said, are you also still without understanding? So verbally, he's like, should I, should I punch you too? And, and uh, Peter's, you know, he, we don't know what he did, but he, he's wanting to learn. He doesn't quite understand. And, and so Jesus is going to tell him. It's kind of a gross explanation, but um, it's in the Bible. Verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the st- stomach and is expelled? So kids... What you eat, you eventually goes to your body, and then you go to the bathroom. That's, that's what he's saying. It's just what he's saying. But here's the point. So he's saying, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So if you eat bacon, it's not going to defile you. If you eat seafood, shellfish, it's not going to defile you. It's going to go in your body and eventually go out of your body. But here's what, what does defile you. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a person. It doesn't defile anyone. So he's saying, The problem is much bigger than outward traditions and rituals can take care of or solve. The problem is all of us, all humanity, no matter where you have been born on this globe, you are born with a fundamental problem. And the Bible calls it our original sinful nature. And it's why people do the things that are on this list that Jesus is talking about in verse 18 or verse 19. Evil thoughts. You think badly of somebody. Murder. And Jesus tells us that anger is the seed sin of murder. Adultery. Jesus tells us lust is the seed sin of adultery. Sexual immorality. Anything that is um, forbidden from Scripture. Theft. But the Bible says coveting, desiring something that is not yours, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. See, one of the reasons that people misunderstand Christianity and think it's just a, you go to church, you you do a few things, and that's what what makes you a Christian is because they misunderstand, oh, the problem is far greater. Um. We have a number of medical people in, in the church. Um, I saw Dr. DeRosa. I think you're here in the back somewhere today. Um, she is a doctor. It would be very unloving of her 
if you came in to see her and she ran tests and she, she gave you a diagnosis that was not accurate, meaning that you had something very serious medically going on and she minimized and lessened it, that wouldn't help you. That might make you feel better as you're leaving the doctor's office. Like, okay, I'm glad it's nothing serious. But in fact, it is something serious. So a good doctor is going to say, here's the problem, no matter how severe the problem is. And if it's a severe problem, they're going to kindly, as lovingly and gently as they can, tell you, oh, you have a serious problem. With that serious problem, here's the serious remedy. Here's where you need to look for help. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. We all have a fundamental serious problem that only Jesus can solve. See, the the Pharisees and the the scribes and the Sadducees, they would have had the Old Testament. And the Old Testament promises that this new covenant would come one day. And this new covenant, when it comes, there's going to be a transformation from the inside of us to the outside of us. Brian, we're going to skip Jeremiah 31, um, 31 through 34. But if you're taking notes, write that down. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Because it, it describes the promise of the new covenant. See, it wasn't going to be this external following of rules and regulations. It was going to be an encounter with the living God where you can know the God who made heaven and earth personally, by faith, by putting your trust in Jesus alone. See, it's only faith in Jesus' death, his life, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection that can transform the human heart. The question is, what attracts Jesus? What gets Jesus' attention? That's an important question for us to know. And I think the answer might be surprising to some of us. We're going to see the answer in verse 21 through 28. So let me give you some examples or questions. Does washing our hands before church or reading the Bible get Jesus' attention? I don't think so. Does our appearance get Jesus' attention? Meaning, when you wake up in the morning, I'm going to guess that probably most of us didn't look like you do right now. Hair's a little wild and um, some of us can't do much with what we got, but some of you do a lot with what you got. Um, does, does dressing up and cleaning up get Jesus' attention? I don't think so. Does perfect church attendance, rain or shine, snow, it doesn't matter, ice, I'm coming, does that get Jesus' attention? How about having a stellar religious pedigree, meaning you're from a long line of Christians and maybe pastors and other leaders and missionaries and all that can be a wonderful gift from the Lord. But that's not what we put our confidence in and I don't think that's what gets Jesus' attention. We're going to see in a moment here in verse 21 and 22 a woman who's not even Jewish who's going to get Jesus' attention by what she does and what she says. Look at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So it's the the non-Jewish district, basically. 
And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Have mercy on me, son of David. My daughter is in desperate trouble. Now, if you study this at all, here's what this woman's family tree looked like. Um, her, her family tree, if you follow it back, they were known for offering human sacrifice. They were known for worshiping pagan gods. They were a notorious enemy of the Jewish people. So as far as pedigree goes, she got nothing. Nothing. But she comes to Jesus and begs him to have mercy on her daughter. Look at verse 23. But he, Jesus, did not answer a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. So, not a high point of the leaders of the future leaders of Christianity. Can you just send her out? She's, she's kind of annoying and she's making a mess and she's making a scene. Just, Jesus, you, you can tell her to go. Um, she's a, I mean, those of your parents or grandparents, she's desperate. She's crying. She's begging. She's pleading with Jesus to do something. He answered her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I, I came first and foremost for my people. Pharisees and scribes being among those people. And they couldn't see him and they didn't believe in him. She didn't walk away though. Look at verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Okay, that's nice. You came for them. Would you please help me? I know you can help me. I believe you can help me. Would you please help me? And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That doesn't sound very nice. That was a common expression in, in Jesus' day. There, there's two words for dogs um, that were used at that time. One is kind of like the wild dogs, and the other is like your household pet. So it was the nicer of the two, if that makes you feel any better. But even that didn't deter her. She could be thinking, wow, that wasn't very nice. Um, because she believed he was the promised son of David. So this is what she says. Yes, Lord. Okay, so dogs are dogs, and you're calling me a dog, and that doesn't feel very good. But she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. So she's, she's undeterred. Okay, well, even a dog gets crumbs off the table. I have a dog, Hershey. He's a big, a little bit overweight chocolate lab who's old, he does very well underneath the table, especially around my seat. I'm, I'm, I'm a softie. Um, but she was humble. She was persistent. She was undeterred, and she believed he could actually help her. Remember, what, what's the issue? Deliverance of a demon. Who can do that? She was convinced he can do that. I heard about who he is. I heard about what he's done, 
And I believe He's the one that was promised. Now listen to what Jesus does next. Verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great, great is your faith. Great is your trust in me. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Do you see the difference? So the plastic apple, the blind guides, they couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't see their need for Jesus. They didn't trust in Jesus. The real thing. She had a messy background. She had a messy past. She had a messy situation. All those things drove her to Jesus. She wasn't preoccupied about washing her hands before she laid on the ground before him, humbling herself before all who were present. And Jesus says, great is your faith. What attracts Jesus' attention is when we believe he is who he says he is. And he can do what he promised to do. So he can save us. He can forgive us. He is committed to us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And so if you're just meeting Jesus now, you can trust him. If you've been following Jesus for decades, be persistent in your unanswered prayers. Be persistent in the things that weigh you down. Be persistent to keep asking, Lord, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you are fully God. I believe you are amazingly powerful. And I trust you. As you start a new year in 2024, be persistent in pursuing Jesus. May this lady inspire us all. She didn't care about what she looked like. She's laid out flat before the Lord, begging Him to do something that only He could do. There are things in our lives right now that no one can intervene with except the living God. Go to Him. Plead with Him. He's attracted to our faith. He responds to our faith. So maybe you're thinking, well, can I really trust Him? How do I know I can really trust Him? Got two more scenes here that, that are going to answer that question. Look at verse 29. Jesus went on from there. He walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up to the mountain and sat down there. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. People with massive, massive difficulties. Why were they all coming to him? Because they heard about him and they believed he was who he said he was. See, we can read this quickly and miss. I mean, just think of the desperation and the, the challenge, particularly in biblical times, of these various conditions. The lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. We don't even know what the many others are. You can imagine what they might be. And they put them at his feet. And look at these three words. We, we can just read too fast past these three words. Four words. And he healed them. He healed them. Every one of them he healed. Jesus is not only 
powerful, but he's loving and he's filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. So, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Did you catch that? So the crowd is like, whoo, what just happened? Well, here's what just happened. The mute were speaking. Those who couldn't talk were suddenly talking. Those who were crippled were healthy. The lame were walking. The blind were seeing. And there was celebration. There was joy. And they knew only God can do this. And they glorified God. See, Jesus is completely trustworthy. Jesus is unlike any other religious leader that's ever walked the face of the earth. Not only did Jesus teach incredible things, but he demonstrated incredible things by who he was, fully God, fully man. There's one last scene in this chapter, and I love how it starts. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, so this is going to answer the question, how do you know you can trust him? I have compassion on the crowd. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on their way. I don't think we often think about the heart of Jesus. I I can't send them away. He can't send you away when you come to him asking, trusting, praying, I'm not going to send them away. I'm unwilling to do that. I'm going to do something that they're never going to forget. He said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and I have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away lest they faint on the way. And the disciples, once again, they're a little slow on the, the take here. Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. So the food is miraculously multiplying. And they all ate. And were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets, full broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the, the region of Magadan. You can trust Jesus. He is unlike anyone else you know. He is filled with really unimaginable unconditional compassion to anyone who looks to him. Anyone who recognizes that, oh yeah, I do have a fatal flaw. I am sinful by nature. My faith is weak, but I believe you alone can help me. Would you please help me? So the question is, 
Which one are you? Are you the real thing? Or do you just have the external trappings of the real thing? If, you're, if you have the external trappings, today is the day to come to terms with what you already know to be true, that your insides are not any different than ours. And you too need a Savior. And there's a Savior that came to rescue you, and you can trust Him. Now for many of you, you are the real thing. You have a resurrected Lord and Savior who conquered the penalty of sin, conquered the power of sin, and is coming back and right now is interceding, praying for you. So in your, your new goals for 2024, make big, bold requests to Jesus. He hasn't changed. He never changes. He is fully powerful, unimaginably so, and He loves you dearly and deeply. And if His miracles aren't convincing enough to you, what what Dave described at communion today is the proof, the undeniable evidence that Jesus loves you. That He died as your substitute taking the wrath of God, the punishment that you and I deserve upon himself and then rose from the grave. So let's be like the Canaanite woman and go to Jesus relentlessly in faith with great confidence. Let's stand and pray and the band can come up. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, the only reason we love you is because you loved us first. And as we we sing this final song, would, would that reality just amaze us? Would your pursuit of us amaze us? And Lord, for those who are facing very difficult things, give them strength to be persistent and bold and courageous and just bear their hearts to you. Lord, we love you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.